We are continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament, the mediator of a new covenant. And this is teaching number 59, which says, what if I do not have confidence in my church's leadership? We're going to get more into that particular topic, that question toward the end of our study. It's going to come out of Hebrews verse 17 of chapter 13. Before we get there, we're going to look at this verse and the context of these verses all together. But our study comes out of Hebrews 13, 6 through 7 and verse 17, which reads this way. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Verse 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then verse 17, he goes back to leaders. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So in Hebrews 13, 6 through 7, we see this word confidence. Confidence, the writer quotes Psalm 118, 6 through 7. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. Then we see in verse 17, he writes, have confidence in your leaders. What we see in these verses is the writer of Hebrews is telling his reader in AD 65, to look to the Lord for help, for strength, for encouragement, and to look to your leaders. So that's what we're going to be looking at in our study, looking to the Lord and looking to your leaders. And we're going to seek to understand this in context. Now, remember, much of Hebrews has to do with the Jewish believers being under persecution for believing in Jesus as the Messiah, believing in Jesus as the Christ, the one the Jewish scriptures said that was coming. Those Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the Christ, they were subjected to intense persecution. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 15 through John 16 verse 4. And he said persecution was going to come upon the Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the Christ. They would get kicked out of their synagogues. They would be imprisoned. We see much of this being carried out in the book of Acts. Paul writes about this suffering that he endured and that others endured in his letters. He writes about the suffering and the persecution that was going on as well. So what the writer is doing is he's seeking to instill confidence in the believers who are being persecuted because of their belief in Jesus as the Messiah, their belief in Jesus as the Christ. And he's seeking to instill confidence in them and courage in them by saying, look to the Lord, that's verse 6, and then look to your leaders. That's verse 7 and verse 17. Let's start with look to the Lord. And he's talking to the Jewish 
believers in AD 65 or somewhere around that time frame, again, who were undergoing intense persecution, rejection. They were being kicked out of the synagogues. They were losing their jobs. They were being rejected. They were ridiculed. They were slandered. They were being criticized and condemned. It was a difficult time for Jewish believers within their communities, within their neighborhoods, if they believed that Jesus was the Christ. And as you read through the book of John, you see the persecution even happening in the book of John against believers during the life of Jesus who believed he was the Christ. We see the fear of these people of being persecuted by the religious spiritual leaders of that time, by the leaders of the synagogues, the rulers of the synagogues, the the leaders in the law of Moses. The same persecution is continuing after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And again, Jesus said this persecution would come. The writer of Hebrews is addressing this persecution when he encourages his reader, the Jewish people of this time, to look to the Lord in the face of persecution. And again, he writes in Hebrews 13, 6, he says, so we say with confidence, that's courage in the face of persecution, confidence. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So we have to understand the historical context. And when we understand the historical context, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, leap off the page at us. They they begin to make sense. So Hebrews 13, 6. So we say with confidence, the word we here is the body of Jewish believers who more than likely were gathering in their assembly. Remember Hebrews 10. The writer says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. He's not talking about going to church there. He's referring to the Jewish believers who needed to come together in the face of persecution so that they could encourage each other, so they could lift each other up in the face of persecution. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Well, why would they forsake the assembling of themselves together? Out of fear. There was much fear among the Jewish believers that it would be easy to not come together because in coming together, they very well could be subjecting themselves to further persecution. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, and continue to meet together, continue to come together. You need each other. You believers in Jesus, those who've embraced Jesus as the Christ and his work on the cross and have left behind the Old Testament of law and have moved into the New Testament of grace, meet together and encourage each other. And it's very possible that when they were meeting together, they were together saying Psalm 118, 6 through 7, which is, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I mean, that would be a verse that they would certainly find strength from in the persecution that they were experiencing. So they're in this environment or this culture of persecution. They're coming together. They're assembling together. And when they're assembling together, they're saying together, Psalm 118, 6 through 7. I mean, you can picture this. 
this Jewish group of people coming together somewhere within the within the neighborhood that they live, the community that they live, the city that they live. They're coming together, maybe at somebody's house or maybe there's a business owner. They, they're meeting at a, at a believing business owner's place. Who knows where they're meeting, but they're meeting somewhere. They're gathering somewhere and they all have in common persecution. So they're coming together to find encouragement from one another. So when they come together, it's highly, highly likely that they were repeating Psalm 118, 6 through 7 together, not as religious repetition, but literally to quote this verse together so that it would instill confidence in them. It would instill encourage within them. And they would say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Now, it jumps off the page here. What can mere mortals do to me? The mortals were, were the Jewish leaders who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Who were the mortals during the life of Jesus? Who were the mortals who were plotting against Jesus and planning against Jesus and seeking to have him arrested and trumping up false accusations and false evidence against Jesus so that they could turn him over to the Gentiles or to the Roman leaders, ultimately to bring him to a place of persecution. I mean, who were the mortals who were doing the same thing with Paul, who were seeking to have Paul arrested and seeking to have Paul persecuted by the Romans? The mortals that were against the believers here were religious leaders. They were also Gentile leaders. So both Jewish and Gentile leaders were coming against believers in Jesus and bringing with them persecution that resulted in intense suffering. So that when they came together, they came together to find encouragement, to find courage, to find confidence during the persecution by saying together, Psalm 118, 6 through 7, the Lord is my helper in this persecution. The Lord is with me. The Lord loves me. The Lord sympathizes with me. The Lord knows what it's like to be me because he himself was subjected to this same type of suffering. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid of my persecutors of those who are rejecting me, of those who are criticizing me, of those who are slandering me, of those who literally can take my life, of those who will drag me out of the synagogue, who will arrest me. What can mere mortals do to me? What can a mere mortal do to another human? Well, the worst thing another mortal, another human can do to another human is is to take their lives which we saw that with Jesus, but that was there was a resurrection. We saw the life of Paul in Acts chapter 14 when he was stoned to death, drug outside the city, but then he, he awakens and goes back into the city. They were under intense persecution. They were under intense pressure. They found encouragement in Psalm 118, 6 through 7, repeating that verse together. What can mere mortals do to me? Paul had this same mindset. In Philippians 1, 20 through 26, when he was persecuted, going through intense 
sufferings for believing that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, and his resurrection. And Paul writes about this in Philippians 1, 20 through 26. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul understood the persecution that he was experiencing very well could result in his death. He states in Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on the account of me. So Paul understood. He very well could die for delivering the gospel of grace to people, the truth of who Jesus is to people. We can read more about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through chapter 5. Paul talks about that. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 28, uh, the sufferings that he experienced because he believed in Jesus and he shared the good news about Jesus. But Paul found encouragement knowing that Christ was with him, was with him, and if he died, he would be with Christ. So Paul was going through this, the same suffering that the Jewish people were going through as well. I've written an article called To Live as Christ and to Die as Gain. It's on Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, and it's on my website, Grace Reach. And you can go to the blog section, go find a blog by title, go down to live as Christ, to die as gain. And I explain that verse within its historical context. What did Paul mean by to live as Christ and to die as gain? Uh, more in-depthly there. But going back to Hebrews, we're looking at the persecution the Jewish people were experiencing around the time of AD 65. The writer of Hebrews is writing to them, encouraging them to look to the Lord. The Lord is their helper. They find strength. They find courage in the Lord, as a result of the Lord being their helper, as a result of the presence of the Lord with them, the love of the Lord for them. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And if their life was taken, that'd be like Paul. Hey, you know what? For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. For me to depart from this earth is to be with Jesus immediately. What's the worst a mortal can do? They can put an end to my physical body, but they cannot end my spiritual life. I will go to be with Jesus upon the death of the physical body. So really, what can mere mortals do to me? Nothing. They can take the physical body, but they cannot take away spiritual life. And I will immediately go to be with Jesus. So I have a feeling when they gathered in these assemblies, they, they really explored these verses more together. They talked about them. And I think the writer of Hebrews is just reminding the reader. I want to remind you of the verses that you have found strength in, that you found encouragement in that you have found confidence in. So he's just writing to them about a verse in Psalms, Psalm 118, 6 through 7, that brought them encouragement. And now he's trying to bring them that same encouragement in his writing to the Hebrews. And it's very possible that the writer was a part of those gatherings. 
when he says, so we say with confidence, it's very possible that he was in those assemblies at one point in time with them, being a part of saying this verse together. All right. So they're going through persecution, and the writer of Hebrews says, look to the Lord in the face of persecution. That's Hebrews 13, 6. And then he says, look to your leaders in the face of persecution. That's Hebrews 13, verse 7, and Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, 6 and 7 and 17, the writer of Hebrews says this again. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? There's the look to the Lord. And then he says, look to your leaders. He says, remember your leaders. And I believe the leaders of verse seven is referring to former leaders, that these leaders have been persecuted, were persecuted for their belief in Jesus, and they died as a result. I don't know if that's true. I just have a feeling that's what he's talking about in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, that's former leaders of the assembly that they're all a part of. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life, which I think that outcome was death, and imitate their faith in the face of your own persecution. And then he comes to verse 17, where he's talking about now have confidence in your leaders. Now I think there he's talking about their current leader, the current leadership of the Jewish assembly that the writer of Hebrews personally knew and completely trusted. We'll get to that momentarily. So he's pointing the believers during persecution, look to the Lord and look to your leaders. He's saying when he tells them, remember your leaders, what is it that he wants his audience, the Jewish people he's writing to, these Jewish believers, what were they to remember about the leaders? We have three remembrances here. The first remembrance is remember the word of God they spoke to you. The second remembrance is remember the outcome of their way of life. And the third remembrance is remember the faith that they modeled and then imitate their faith. So let's look at each one of these remembrances. What is the word of God the former leaders spoke to the Jewish believers? It says, remember the word of God they spoke to you. Well, the great mistake people make when they read the Bible And we make this mistake because we haven't been taught any differently. So it's a very common mistake is, is when we see the phrase, the word of God, we automatically assume that it's talking about the Bible. That's a major, major mistake when we read the Bible is to assume that the phrase, the word of God, when we see it in the Bible, is referring to the Bible itself, which is not at all what it's referring to. The word of God never means the Bible. It's really important to understand. The writings contained in the Bible were not compiled into one volume until AD 350 to 400. So there was no Bible. So the word of God cannot be talking about the Bible because the Bible didn't even exist. So how could it be talking about the Bible if the Bible didn't exist? It can't. 
the Bible wasn't published widely as we know it until the 1400s and the 1500s. I mean, people didn't even have Bibles. They wouldn't even known to, to associate the phrase word of God with the Bible because there was no such thing as the Bible until AD 350 to 400 and into the 1400s and 1500s, it was produced more widely. So with that understanding, then it brings us to the, to the question, well, if the word of God does not refer to the Bible, then what does the word of God refer to? Well, the context of the phrase the word of God always teaches us what the word of God is. The context will communicate to us what the word of God is. So let's look at four examples of the use of the word of God. None of them are talking about the Bible. They're all talking about different things or sometimes similar things. But four examples. The first example is the word of God sometimes refers to the law of Moses. You can read about that in Psalm 119, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. It says, the word of God is living and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not talking about the Bible there. The Bible wasn't even in existence. The word of God in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, that's sharper than any two-edged sword, is the law of Moses. It exposes the sinfulness of the human heart. It lays the human heart bare so that a person can recognize their sinfulness. That's the purpose of the law. And the word of God is the law in context of some verses. We see in Romans chapter 7 that the word of God was a two-edged sword in the man written about in, in Romans 7, 7 through 25, where it exposed the sinfulness of his heart. It was a double-edged sword. It revealed how sinful he was, which brought him to a place of condemnation, which then brought him to a place of salvation. Condemnation under law, salvation under grace through faith in Jesus. So we always have to let the context of the phrase, the word of God, communicate to us what the word of God is within that context and for that audience and for that group of people who were hearing the word of God at that time. Remember, the word of God came to Jonah. Well, the Bible didn't come to Jonah. There was no Bible to come to Jonah. The word of the Lord, the word of God came to Jonah, which was go to Nineveh. The context of the word of God coming to Jonah tells us what the word of God was for Jonah. All right. So the first example we see of what the word of God is is the word of God sometimes refers to the law of Moses. Example number two is the word of God is used by the apostles in the book of Acts. And it's referring to the message of Jesus being the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, that Jesus was the Christ. And the word of God also used by the apostles in Acts referred to the resurrection of the Messiah. Peter proclaims the word of God in Acts chapter 2 when he talks about the name of the Messiah is Jesus. The Jewish scriptures said he would come. The Jewish scriptures said he would die. The Jewish scriptures say he would rise from the dead. So Peter's proclaiming the word of God, which it's the message of Jesus being the Messiah. It's, it's the fulfillment 
of these prophecies that a Christ would come and they're fulfilled by Jesus. So as you read through the book of Acts, you will see the phrase, the word of God. We can't assume that's the Bible because it's not the Bible. It's not talking about the Bible. It's never talking about the Bible. In Acts, much of Acts, it's talking about Jesus being the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. That was the word of God for the people during the book of of Acts. Example number three is the word of God by Paul. How did Paul use this phrase, the word of God? Now, when Paul used the phrase, the word of God, again, he's never talking about the Bible. The Bible didn't even exist during that time. When Paul uses the phrase, the word of God, the context that Paul uses the phrase, the word of God in, will communicate to us what the word of God is. All right, we'll see that momentarily. When Paul uses the word of God, many times he's talking about the message of Jesus being the Christ, being the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. He's also talking about the word of God being the word of God's grace or the message of God's grace through Jesus to the human race. We see this in Acts 13, 13 through chapter 14, verse 3. We see it in Acts 20, 32, the word of grace. We see it in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, 2 Timothy 2, 9, and 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, as Paul spoke the word of God, the, the message of the cross, the message that Jesus is the Messiah, the message that he's the Christ, the message that forgiveness is in Christ. The message is that we receive forgiveness by faith. We receive righteousness by faith. Paul's declaring the word of God as it relates to the cross of Jesus, as it relates to complete forgiveness, as it relates to complete righteousness, as it relates to faith in Jesus, then receives righteousness, receives forgiveness. That is the word of God. Sometimes at a church service, if a pastor is very vocal and very charismatic, people will say the following words. Boy, the pastor sure was preaching the word of God tonight. Well, because somebody is emotionally energized on a stage, just because somebody has a Bible on a stage or on a pulpit, And just because they're passionate doesn't mean they're teaching the word of God. The chances of that they were teaching the word of God or preaching the word of God is very, very low. Because most teachers of the word of God don't act crazy on a stage. They don't go wild. They don't jump around. they're, They're not energetic and all over the place. And so often that is equated to, he sure did preach the word tonight. I remember watching someone and I was with a group of people and, and, and everybody loved this particular pastor. The reason they loved him is because he was energetic. He was funny. He could also make you cry. I mean, he, he was a pastor that people really, really thought taught the word of God. And as I listened to this pastor over the course of several months, it became crystal clear that This pastor had very little understanding of the Word of God, very little understanding. He preached holding the Bible in his hands, but he didn't preach the Word of God. He preached energetically, but he didn't teach the Word of God. 
he didn't understand the scriptures. He, he, he didn't understand what the word of God was within the context of when that phrase was used. He wasn't teaching the word, but so often when believers see a pastor with our, our pastor really spoke the word of God tonight. Well, did they, did they teach what Paul taught about the gospel of grace? Did they teach what Paul taught about the new covenant of grace? Did they teach that forgiveness is received by faith? Did they teach that righteousness is received by faith? Did they help people understand from the Jewish scriptures that Jesus is the, the Messiah, the Christ? Did they help people understand that the Jewish scriptures pointed to a Messiah and a Christ that would come and be born in Bethlehem and, and would suffer and, and ultimately would, would die, Isaiah 53, but then would rise again from the grave as Peter did in, in Acts. So when Paul uses the phrase, the word of God, he's using it either to refer to Jesus as the Messiah, his sufferings, his crucifixion, his resurrection, as he did in Acts chapter 13, or he's using the word of God to refer to the gospel of grace. Look in, you can look in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul uses the phrase, the word of truth. We're going to look at Colossians 1, 3 through 8, and Colossians 1, 24 through 29 to see how Paul uses this phrase, the word of God. And remember, he's not talking about the Bible because the Bible didn't exist. Paul says in Colossians 1, 3 through 8, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth, of the gospel. The word simply means the message. The word of God in context is the message of God to that group of people at that point in time. So remember, the context will always tell us what the message of God was to that group of people. The word of truth, the message of truth is the gospel. It's the message of what God has done for us in Christ. Paul says again in Colossians 1.5, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, the gospel being everything God did for us in Christ to bring us complete righteousness and full forgiveness of sins that's received by faith, to bring us eternal life in Christ. The word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as it also has in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. The gospel produces fruit, the gospel of grace. We'll see in a moment as it is also among you in Colossae, the gospel is bearing fruit in you. It's producing fruit in and through you, the truth of the gospel. As it also is among you since the day you heard the word of truth, the gospel and he's going to tell us exactly what it is, and knew the grace of God in truth. So what is the word of the truth of the gospel? It's the grace of God. The grace of God is the word of truth for us today. The grace of God is what the book of Romans is all about. 
The word grace is used seven times in the book of Hebrews, encouraging the people to leave the law of Moses, come to the grace of Jesus. Hebrews 2, 9, the grace of Jesus where he tasted death for everybody. That's the word of truth. The writer of Hebrews is presenting the word of truth to the Hebrew people. The word of truth is Jesus is the Messiah, son of God, chapter one, son of man, chapter two. He's fully God. He's fully human. Through his blood, Jesus was the mediator of a new covenant. The Old Testament of law is obsolete. The New Testament of grace has come. God has set aside the old and he's put the gospel of grace or the new covenant of grace in place. That's the word of truth that's being communicated by Paul. And again, the word of truth is not talking about the Bible. It's not talking about the word of God. It's not talking about the Bible. The Bible contains the word of truth, and we have to look in the context to see what is the word of truth or the, or the word of God within context for that audience and at that time. For Paul, it was the message of the gospel of grace. It was the message that Jesus is the Messiah, that he rose from the grave according to the scriptures, that he would return was a part of the, the word of, of God at that time. So Paul identifies the word of truth of the gospel as the grace of God in truth. And notice, when did those people begin growing and, and bearing fruit? When they heard and knew, the word know, knew here means to understand. When they heard and began to understand the gospel of grace, they began to grow. I talk a lot about that in my study on Colossians. It's on the Grace Reach podcast, uh, if you want to check that out. They learned about the gospel of grace, verse 7, from Epaphras. They begin growing. And then Paul, again, talks about the word of God in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So Paul is being persecuted. He's suffering for sharing the gospel of grace with people at the hand of the religious leaders. We can see that happening in the book of Acts, as well as in Paul's letters. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I'm suffering, and as I, as I share the gospel of grace, I'm suffering at the hands of those who are persecuting me. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Verse 25 of which I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God. You can look in Ephesians chapter 3 to learn more about God gave Paul the assignment of teaching the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. So Paul says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, that's to the Gentiles. God gave me an assignment, a responsibility, Paul says, to go to the Gentiles and to share with them the gospel of grace. Verse 25, Colossians chapter 1, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given me for you, that's the Gentiles, to fulfill, here it is, to fulfill the word of God. Well, what is the word of God as Paul uses it in Colossians 24 through 29? He's going to tell us. Here it is. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. So the word of God for his audience was a mystery. For generations and ages, nobody knew what Paul began to communicate. But now the word of God, which at one time was a mystery, hidden for ages and generations, 
has been revealed to the saints. That's the believers in Jesus who have been purified from all sins, cleansed from all sins, who are fully forgiven and completely righteous through faith in Jesus. To them, the saints, the believers in Jesus, God willed to make known what are the riches. Here's the word of God. The riches. Paul talks a lot about the riches of grace in Ephesians. To them, God willed, to them being the Gentiles, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of his mystery. The mystery is the word of God, right? We just saw that. Among the Gentiles. Here it is. Here's the word of God, which is Christ in you. Has nothing to do with the Bible. Has everything to do with the presence of Jesus Christ indwelling a believer, especially a Gentile believer. That was jaw-dropping during this time, that the Messiah, the Christ of the Jewish people would live in the hearts of the Gentiles. That's why Paul was chased down. That's why he suffered so much, that God was blessing the Gentiles through Jesus. And the Jesus whom they placed their faith in would come and live inside of them. The Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus, rejected Paul's message of grace to the Gentiles, rejected that the Messiah would live in the Gentiles. But the word of God here is Christ in you. That's the word of God. So we remember the context of the phrase, the word of God, will always communicate to us the meaning of the word of God within that time period that what we're reading when it was written and who was speaking it and who was the audience. That's going to define the word of God. And remember, it never is talking about the Bible. It's talking about some spiritual truth that can be identified within the context. Okay. Let's look at one more final example of what the Word of God is. It's uh, example number four. It's Luke. As Luke writes Acts, Luke refers to the Word of the Lord many times in the book of Acts. Also, the Word of God. We can look in Acts 26, 15 through 18, Acts 20, 24, and Acts 20, 32, Acts 13, 38 through 39. Remember, Luke traveled with Paul. So Luke is watching the word of God being delivered from God through Paul to many people. And so Luke will use the word of the Lord, uh, the word of God. And so it'll define, as you, as you see the context, what the word of the Lord is or the word of God is. So remember, we're in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. We're looking at the phrase, the word of God. And Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So the question is this, what is the word of God, the former leaders of the Jewish assembly of believers who I think have died, and he's referencing former leaders who've died, What is the word of God that those leaders spoke to the readers of this letter to the Hebrews around the time of AD 65? What would the word of God been? Well, it's much what we see in the book of Acts. The word of God would have been the message about Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus, the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. So the Jewish leaders would have been helping the Jewish believers 
understand the Jewish scriptures and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. Remember in Luke, when the two men were walking on the road to Emmaus and they were discouraged and they were down and they were disappointed because they thought Jesus was the Messiah of the Jewish scriptures. They thought he was the Christ of the Jewish scriptures, but after the crucifixion, they were discouraged and they no longer believed he was the Messiah or the Christ. And suddenly Jesus begins walking with them and they don't know it's Jesus at the time. But as Jesus walks with them, it, Luke says, Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, referring to the Jewish scriptures. And Jesus began explaining to them how Jesus was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. And then it was at a later point in time that they understood that the one who was walking with them, explaining to them the word of God, being Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. At a later time, they realized, oh, that was Jesus walking with us. I mean, what an amazing experience that these two men had. So the word of God that the former Jewish leaders would have spoken to the believers as it relates to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, would have been from the Jewish scriptures, much like Jesus did with the two men on the road to Emmaus, helping them understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Christ in the Jewish scriptures. Also, the word of God would have been the message of the good news of grace and the New Testament of grace, possibly even the teaching of Christ in you. That was the word of God. All right. Hebrews 13, 7 again says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So what were they to remember? In this time of persecution, that they were going to remember something that would bring them confidence, that would bring them courage, because these mere mortals were seeking to take their lives. Well, they would remember the word of God the leader spoke to them, being, yes, Jesus is the Christ, you're believing the truth, don't abandon this truth that Jesus is the Christ, no matter if these mere mortals are persecuting you. Be confident in the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. That would give them strength within the sufferings of the persecution. And then they were to remember the outcome of the leader's way of life. What was the outcome of these leaders? It was possibly death that their continued faith in what the scripture said about Jesus being the Messiah of the Messiah coming, and then that Jesus was the fulfillment of those, the outcome of the way of life of these leaders very well could have been death. Remember, the whole context toward the end of Hebrews chapter 10 is persecution. When we move into Hebrews 12, the great cloud of witnesses live by faith. Jesus is the great example, the great model of faith under intense persecution when he went to the cross. So the writer's writing in Hebrews 12 that he's showing them Jesus. He's using Jesus as the ultimate model of faith who endured the cross. He's writing to them so that they themselves will not grow weary and lose heart because of the sinful opposition coming against them because they believe that Jesus is the Christ. The same sinful opposition that came against them in Hebrews 12 is the same sinful opposition that's coming against Jesus. Jesus shed his blood in death 
when he endured the opposition from these persecutors, they haven't died yet. They hadn't shed their blood in death in their persecution. But it's very possible that their former leaders did die in being persecuted for their belief in Jesus as the Christ. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, remember the word of the Lord, the leader spoke to you about Jesus being the Messiah. Remember the word of the Lord that your leader spoke to you about the new covenant of grace, replacing the old covenant of law. Remember the gospel of grace. Remember the full forgiveness of sins that you were taught, the righteousness that you were taught, that holiness is through faith in Jesus and not by following the law. That's the word of God that these people heard. Most believers have never heard the word of God. Most believers don't understand the new covenant. They still think the New Testament is a set of books, but the New Testament is not a set of books. The New Testament is the Savior's blood where he poured his blood out upon a cross and he offers us full forgiveness of sins and complete forgiveness and complete righteousness that comes by faith where we're fully forgiven. We don't continually ask for forgiveness over and over. Matter of fact, God's not waiting on anybody to ask him for forgiveness. God is asking people to accept his forgiveness that God purchased for them at the cross. God's asking people to receive forgiveness. God's not waiting on anybody to request forgiveness. God's saying, here's my forgiveness. It's a gift. It's free. It's yours. It was purchased at the cross. And we receive that by faith. That's the word of God for today. And most believers haven't heard that message. So what were these Jewish believers to remember when they were under intense persecution? The word of God that the leader spoke to you about the gospel of grace, the new covenant of grace. They were to remember the outcome of the leader's way of life, which was death. And they were to remember the faith the leaders modeled. And then they were to imitate that faith. It was a faith that withstood the persecution in the face of fear. And in withstanding that persecution in the face of fear, it cost them their lives. And these readers, these Jewish leaders, are facing the same persecution. And we see that even in history. We see how many believers died because they believed in Jesus as the Christ. And many of them were thrown into the Roman Colosseum. They were dressed in bloody animal skins. They were thrown to the lions. They were set on fire to light up Nero's courtyard. I mean, believers were dying. They needed encouragement. I mean, no wonder they could come in and repeat Psalm 118 to find encouragement in the face of these persecutions that could cost them their lives. What can mere mortals do to me? Yes, they can take my life physically, but they can't take my life spiritually. Because like Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain. That was their mindset. And it took faith to not surrender to the sufferings of the persecution and deny Jesus. So they assembled together. They repeated Psalm 118 together. Their leaders then encouraged them that they saw their leaders die because of their belief in Jesus and their confidence that Jesus was the Christ and that he established the New Testament of grace that Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, said that he would establish. And then the writer is saying, hey, look, look to the faith of these former leaders who died. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. They didn't grow weary. They continued to believe even though they were under tremendous persecution. 
faith is a major topic in Hebrews. It's used about 30 times in the book of Hebrews. It's used in Hebrews 3 through 4, enter by faith into the promised land of grace. It's used in Hebrews 10, 36 through 39, to live by faith in the return of Christ while they were undergoing persecution. Hebrews 11 provides many examples for the Jewish people, people from their own lineage who live by faith. Hebrews 12 is a display of Jesus by faith going to the cross in the face of persecution. Hebrews 6.12 talks about to wait patiently by faith in the promised inheritance. And Hebrews 6.12 says to imitate the faith of others, which is what the writer of Hebrews writes about. And when he says, imitate the faith of your, to me, your previous leaders who, who died in faith which is it's part of the theme of Hebrews. So Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And what is this faith? It's a faith that is convinced that Jesus is the Christ. It is a faith that is convinced that Jesus established the New Testament of grace. The law is gone and grace has come. It's a faith that is convinced and is confident that forgiveness is in Christ, that righteousness is in Christ and not the law of Moses. It's, it's a faith that looks for the return of Jesus in the middle of persecution. I think he switches from the previous leaders to current leaders in Hebrews 13, 17. He goes back to leaders. And this has more to do with the title of the the lesson that we're studying. Do I have to submit to my church leaders? What if I don't have confidence in them? Do I have to submit to them? Had somebody send me an email a, a while back, Brad, what does Hebrews 13, 17 mean? Do I have to obey my pastors? Do I have to submit to my pastors? What does that mean? Let's read Hebrews 13, 17. Have confidence, some translations say obey, obey your leaders. The better Greek translation is not the word obey. The better Greek translation is have confidence in your leaders, trust your leaders. So Hebrews 13, 17, have confidence in your leaders and submit or place yourself under their leadership, submit to their authority or place yourself under their leadership because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So what typically happens with Hebrews 13, 17 is this verse is removed from its context. And when we remove a verse from its context, no matter what verse it is in the Bible, then we can twist that verse and make it say anything we want it to say. And that's the first error when it comes to accurately interpreting Scripture. Scripture always interprets Scripture. So if I rip a verse from its context, then I've removed it from the source of its interpretation. We can only interpret Hebrews 13, 17 from the context that it's in because the context will communicate to us the meaning of the verse. So who is the writer writing to? Well, he's not writing to any of us. 
we weren't even born in AD 65, right? So he can't be writing to us. This is a real letter written by a real person to a real group of people who were undergoing extreme persecution around the time of AD 65 because of their belief in Jesus as the Christ, his work on the cross, his resurrection, and that he established the New Testament of grace in his blood, resulting in full forgiveness of sins, complete cleansing of sins, total righteousness, and eternal life that's received by faith. Okay. The writer evidently knows the leaders whom he is referring to. He knew the previous leaders, and he says, I want you to imitate their faith because I knew them. I knew the word of God that they taught. I knew that they were teaching you accurately. I knew that they were teaching you accurately of that Jesus is the Christ. I know that they were teaching you accurately about how Jesus fulfilled the Jewish scriptures. I know that your former leaders were teaching you accurately that Jesus established the New Testament in his blood, which fulfilled Jeremiah 31 through 34, where God no longer counts our sins against us. I know your previous leaders were teaching accurately that the New Testament of grace had taken the place of the Old Testament of law and that the Old Testament of law was now obsolete. So the writer of Hebrews in AD 65 knew the previous leaders, and he also knew the current leaders. And because he knew the current leaders, then he could tell them to place themselves under the leadership of the current leaders of the Jewish assembly, who was the caretaker of the letter that the writer of Hebrews was writing. And because he personally knew these leaders, and because he had complete confidence in these leaders, then he could write to the Jewish people receiving the letter the following words. Have confidence in your leaders and place yourself underneath their leadership. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews knew the leaders. He knew that they taught the word of God, being the New Testament of grace, the fullness of what God had done for us in Christ the full forgiveness of sins, the complete righteousness through faith in Jesus. That righteousness doesn't come through following the law. It comes through faith in Jesus. doesn't come through formulas. It comes through faith. comes through trusting in Jesus, not trying, that we're close to God because of the blood of Jesus, not because of some type of religious practice that we're doing, whether it's fasting or whether it's praying for extended period of time or confessing all of our sins continually. It's all about the blood of Christ. So the writer of Hebrews could tell the the reader at that time, because he knew these leaders understood the new covenant of grace. They understood the work of Christ on the cross and that the leaders were not going to lead the people astray, which was happening so often as Paul writes his letters. So he says, hey, have confidence in your leaders. Your leaders are teaching you correctly about the new covenant of grace. Your leaders are teaching you correctly about God remembers your sins no more, about the blood of Christ that purifies from all sins and cleanses from all sins. Your leaders are teaching you correctly that Jesus is the Son of God of Hebrews 1 and the Son of Man of Hebrews 2, fully God, fully man, who mediates a new covenant, bringing the old covenant, making it obsolete and bringing it to an end. You can trust your leaders. I know them. So have confidence in them. Place yourself under their leadership because they keep watch over you. They're they're wanting to protect you from the savage wolves that are going to try to 
to rip the gospel of grace from you. Paul writes about this in Acts chapter 20. He says, when I leave Ephesus, savage wolves are going to come in and they're going to try to rip the gospel of grace right from you. So the leaders were put there to protect the believers from these savage wolves who were preying on on the believers because they believed in the gospel of grace. You can read about that in, in Acts 20. They believed in the new covenant of grace. So it says, listen, these leaders are here to protect you. Don't give them a hard time about their teaching of the new covenant. And we know what that's like. As a, a teacher of the gospel of grace communicates the gospel of grace, communicates the New Testament, people within an assembly that they're teaching in, within a church that they're teaching in, can begin giving that one believer or that one teacher or several teachers who teach in the gospel of grace a very difficult time where the teacher's there only to protect the people and help the people to grow. So have confidence in your leaders. Place yourself under their leadership because they keep watch over you to protect you as those who must give an account. Now, what's that referring to? I think giving an account here is referring to Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, verse 2, I believe, that teachers will give an account of what they taught. Some teachings are wood, hay, and stubble that'll burn up, and other teachings are precious stone, gold, and silver, and that will remain. And so the judgment of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 through 1 Corinthians chapter 4 about verse 2 is what teachers taught will be judged by the Lord. It's not a judgment of all believers. It's a judgment of teachers who will give an account of what they taught is how I understand 1 Corinthians chapter 3 through 1 Corinthians 4. I've written on this. Again, it's in my blog. That's gracereach.org. It's an article that I've written called Escaping Through the Flames. You can go to Grace Reach. You can go to find a blog by title, go down to the E's, Escaping Through the Flames. And I write on the context of of the judgment that's being referred to in 1 Corinthians 2 through 4 around verse 2 as well. All right, real quick, Hebrews 3.17, have confidence in your leaders, place yourself under their leadership because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Now, remember, the writer of Hebrews knows these leaders whom he's exhorting the Jewish believers to place themselves under the leadership of these leaders. And he says, if you will place yourself under the leadership of these leaders who are teaching you accurately and teaching you correctly about what the new covenant is, about the full forgiveness of sins, closeness with God because of the blood of Christ, complete purification from sins, if you'll place yourself under their leadership, If you'll listen to them and learn from them, it's going to benefit you. You're going to grow. But if you resist the message that they're communicating about Jesus being the Christ, if you resist the message they're communicating about the new covenant of grace, if you resist the message they're communicating about full forgiveness of sins, complete cleansing of sins, permanent purification from sins, if you resist that message, that's going to be no benefit for you because remember what we read back in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. 
that when the Colossian people heard the gospel of grace by Epaphras, it produced fruit in their lives. It benefited them greatly when they heard and they understood the gospel of grace. It began to change them. To me, the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. Your leaders are communicating to you the good news of grace. And remember the context, we'll look at this next week, I believe. It's be careful about strange teachings that are not grace teachings. If any strange teaching comes to you, you need to reject that. Any teaching that's not grace is a strange teaching. Today, unfortunately, grace is the strange teaching. And most other teachings are accepted. Grace is a strange teaching to many believers. That's why when it's communicated, people look at us and say, whoa, that's strange. I've never heard that before. Well, that was possibly happening here as well. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, I know these leaders. I know they're teaching you accurately about the new covenant of grace. I know they're teaching you accurately about the work of Christ. I know they're teaching you accurately about the blood of Christ full forgiveness of sins, complete cleansing of sins, permanent purification of sins. God remembers your sins no more. They were all counted against Christ. There is no more forgiveness. You are fully forgiven. He says, listen to them, place yourself underneath their leadership. Don't give them a hard time because if you give them a hard time about what they're teaching you, that's not going to benefit you at all. So back to the title of of this teaching. Do I have to submit to my pastor's leadership. Well, that's not what Hebrews chapter 13, 17 is about. Any pastor that would use that verse to manipulate people, to submit to their leadership, doesn't understand that verse. And anybody who would use that verse to try to manipulate somebody to submit to the pastor of the church's leadership is misusing that verse. That's not what that verse is at all. That verse is about somebody who understands the new covenant, who understands the new Testament, who really understands the full forgiveness of sins in Christ and righteousness in Christ. And the old law is gone and the the new covenant of grace has come. Remember in Galatians 5, 1, Paul tells the believers, don't let yourself be burdened again to slavery to the law. Don't let anyone Don't let any teacher, don't let any spiritual leader bring you away from grace and put you back under the bondage of the law. So Paul tells people in Galatians, get away from those spiritual leaders. Don't submit to them. If they're putting you under law and under formulas and under rituals and under uh, disciplines to be right with God, don't submit to that leadership. It, It won't be of any value to you. Get away from them. Jesus said the same thing. He says, hey, get away from the Pharisees and and their teachings. Get away from those spiritual leaders. Paul says in Colossians 2.8 and 2.16 through 13, get away from those spiritual leaders who are putting you into bondage. So does a member of a church have to submit to the leadership of their pastor? Absolutely not. These verses don't teach that at all. But if your pastor is communicating the new covenant of grace, he understands that the New Testament is not about books, but it's about blood, full forgiveness. Yeah, you you may want to take a closer look and and a closer listen to what they're saying. It doesn't mean everything they're saying is accurate, but you can have a, a lot more confidence in a leader who understands what the New Testament really is and what the gospel of grace really is. And because you can have more confidence 
and you can put yourself under their leadership. Doesn't mean you have to do everything they, they say you do. That doesn't mean you have to believe everything they teach. But you can listen to them and you can learn from them at the same time being a Berean of Acts chapter 17, checking out everything to make sure that what they're teaching aligns with Scripture. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, click the donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.